The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. It's been exciting and it's been overwhelming. It's exciting to see people arising, to see the amount of bravery on the streets, how these like young women and men go stand up against the armored police with bare hands. It's been inspiring. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Over recent years, most scholars and researchers have been focused on democratic decline and erosion. The narrative overlooks the many people who live under autocratic rule who daily work to bring about democratic governance in their home countries. Unfortunately, as hard as it is to bring about a democracy, it's just as difficult to sustain democratic government. The challenge, then, is not simply to bring about democracy, but a durable democracy that lasts. Of course, most activists prefer to work on one problem at a time. They figure they can build a durable democracy once they actually have a democracy. But Muhammad Ali Khadivar disagrees. He argues the foundations for durable democracy begin long before democratization. Ali is an assistant professor of sociology and international studies at Boston College. His new book is Popular Politics and the Path to Durable Democracy. Ali's work connects back to some of the past themes from the podcast, like civil resistance, revolution, and protest. He argues longer periods of mobilization allow for better prospects for durable democracy. Unfortunately, recent revolutions often happen so quickly that movements don't really have time to lay those foundations before a democratic transition starts. Now, I originally spoke to Ali back in August. It was about a month before widespread protests broke out in Iran. I'm bringing it up because I brought Ali back to discuss how the protests fit into this theory of democratic durability. But I also wanted to hear what those protests meant to him personally, because he grew up in Iran. So make sure to listen until the end so you can hear his thoughts on the recent protests in Iran. Finally, I also want to mention that I've gotten some great pieces of writing from listeners to feature on the blog at democracyparadox.com. If you're interested in writing a post, you can email me at jkempf at democracyparadox.com. But for now, here is my conversation with Muhammad Ali Khadivar. Muhammad Ali Khadivar, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Hi, and thank you very much for having me. So, Ali, I was really, really impressed with the book that you've just written, Popular Politics and the Path to Durable Democracy. It's a fascinating book because... It touches on the idea of democratization, but it extends beyond that to think about how can the strategies that are applied during the democratization process help lead to the consolidation of democracy? Because typically we think of those as two different phases, but you're linking the two and saying that the consolidation of democracy really begins when we begin to democratize, when we begin the democratization movement. And you actually look at a few different cases, some succeed, some fail. And one of those is Egypt. And you write, the Egyptian movement of January 25th failed to fulfill these pro-democracy functions, partially because its success was so rapid. 
Tell me about Egypt's brief democratic transition and why you believe that it failed. Yeah, so the Egyptian revolution started shortly after the start of the revolution in Tunisia. It inspired Egypt and other Arab countries. And the event, Egypt also joined the what was called Arab Spring. It had a bigger effect on the other Arab countries because Egypt is so central in the Arab world and in the Middle East. The protests that brought down Hosni Mubarak took three weeks. The protesters did not expect this. Mubarak didn't expect this. No one expected this. But this is typical in revolutionary moments. People come to the street and they're surprised that there are so many other people in the street. So the opposition groups that gathered in Tahrir Square, which were from different sections, but the main divide in the Middle East is between Islamists and non-Islamists often. They were not ready for this moment. They didn't have conversations among each other about what to do after Mubarak is gone. And disagreements started between them right away. Mubarak stepped down or was forced to step down by the Egyptian military. So in a way, this was also a coup. The Supreme Council of Armed Forces, SCAF, took the leading role in Egyptian politics. And the opposition also did not have a consensus to push back SCAF at the time. Part of the non-Islamist opposition, especially the youth, they were adamant in their opposition to SCAF at that moment. Muslim Brotherhood, who had been kept away from entering formal politics without constraints, saw this opportunity of a lifetime that now they can participate in elections. And uh, in the book, I emphasize that the duration of protest matter. One aspect of longer period of protest mobilization is organization building. This did not have for the non-Islamist opposition. So we had a very uneven organizational balance in the Egyptian opposition. You have organizationally strong Muslim Brotherhood. Now that Mubarak was gone, they were able to translate their organizational power on the streets to the ballot boxes. This was not the case for the non-Islamists. They did poorly in all of the elections that were held from 2011, the referendum, the legislative election, and the presidential election. They lost these elections one after another, which brought them closer to the holdovers of the ancient regime, of the previous regime. So this alliance was formed, the non-Islamist miscalculation here, and their perception was that the military was going to come in, remove Muslim Brotherhood, and then hand the power to them. The prime ministership initially was given to Muhammad al-Baradai, but then the massacre of Rab'ah happened, which I think the anniversary was just a few days ago. And I mean, Baradai realized this is not the case. He resigned, and the rest of them, I think, also realized military is not going to give them the power. Some of them are in prison now, people who participated in the 2013 uprising, which led to the coup. And we have had a resurgence of authoritarianism with a different combination. Military is more powerful now than it was before. So one of the lessons I learned from your book about this case was the fact that the transition was just so rapid that it didn't give the different groups, opportunities to be able to work together about what a democracy would actually look like. How is it that they'd be able to work together? So you had multiple different groups, not just liberals, that were dissatisfied with the type of government that ended up coming out of the Egyptian revolution. In contrast to Egypt, though, you give what I think you might describe as an ideal case, which was South Africa. And South Africa's democratization movement took a very long time. I think most South Africans would say it took too long. But can you tell just a little bit about what the democracy movement in South Africa did differently than what happened in Egypt? Yeah, so you're right. South Africa is probably the longest, depending where we start counting, where the mobilization started. So we have mobilization, protest demonstrations during 1980s, but there were protests in 70s, 60s, and 50s. So African National Congress was formed in early 20th century. They stepped up their activities in 1950s. They had the methods of nonviolent resistance. 
but they were uh, faced with heavy repression. So ANC decides to go underground and takes armed insurgency. So we have a period of quiescence, and then there are uprisings that erupted in 1970s. They were suppressed, these uprisings, but they brought new conversations to the opposition. Why the uprising was failed? One of the messages they took from this is that the organizations of the opposition was weak and they had to build opposition and also be more inclusive and build alliances. It was a strategy of ANC to be inclusive. They were in alliance with the Communist Party and they were also inclusive of white people in South Africa that wanted to assist the anti-apartheid movement. So Soweto was a turning point. It brought down different segments of the opposition. And also the South African government suppressed the movement, also came under international pressure. At the same time, we have formation of new trade unions in South Africa that I have detailed in the book. When the protests scaled up in South Africa, it brought different wings of the movement together. So ANC, on relying on this alliance, was able to represent opposition in the negotiations. Both the government recognized them and the opposition recognized them. So 1994, they wrote a constitution, there were elections, and at this moment also ANC was able to contest power until today they have been in power. But that organizational expansion, the formation of alliances, and the hegemonic position that ANC was holding into the opposition I think we were crucial in keeping the transition process to move forward for the new institutions to be built and supported by political leadership and also the grassroots. So key part of your idea is the fact that the democratic transition is more effective when it lasts longer, when it has time to be able to work through all of the different questions that are going to come up when the country finally democratizes. But I don't know that it's necessary for that process to take a long time so much as it is to be able to fulfill certain steps, I would think. Because if it takes a really long time, but they don't answer any of those questions, it's not going to be effective either, obviously. What steps must an opposition make then for a democratic transition to actually succeed? So democracy is a collective game when we agree on certain rules for making decisions and for resolving our conflicts. That's what democracy is. And what are organizations? Organizations also are collectives that have formal rules for decision-making. An organization is not necessarily democratic. We have non-democratic organizations. But the first step is just to have an organization with formal rules. Next step is to have democratic rules. So. One step is to organize and build organizations. I think informal organizations could be resilient against repression, but the ambiguity is not, I think, compatible eventually for democracy. Building organization also means you have a group of people that agree to work with each other. They practice cooperation and it creates capacity for collective action. Again, democracy is collective action at the highest level which builds a lower capacity in society for collective action. So having these internal rules, expanding organizations, and I don't think any society, one organization can include all segments of society. So then learning to work with each other, and even though they disagree with each other, eventually they have to agree on rules about how to resolve disagreements. So having a democratic discourse, promoting that and showing that in practice, which would be shown in the internally in an organization and in terms of how organizations work and enter into conversation with each other. So organization building, alliance formation, and a conversation about what do we want, what do we disagree about, and how we can go about our disagreement. I mean, many major theories of democracy also emphasize processes of deliberation and conversation in the public sphere which goes also into alliance building and organizational formation. What kind of organization is this? What kind of political regime do we want? These are major questions to be dealt with. And having some, I think, patience for losing formal power initially. And now we see groups cannot wait. I think if the non-Islamic had waited for another election in Egypt, the popularity of the Muslim Brotherhood Party, it was declining. 
there was a big chance that they would have lost the next election, as Islamists in Tunisia lost the 2014 election. So having a little patience, not becoming paranoid and waiting for the next electoral chair. It sounds like it's not just about building organizations. It sounds like institution building has to actually begin before formal democratization actually occurs. And we kind of see that in the case of South Africa, where you have the ANC being developed as an institution within South Africa. You have labor unions developing as institutions within South Africa. It's always hard to distinguish the line between an organization or an institution, but it sounds like these are institutions that are going to live beyond the authoritarian past and transition over into democracy. Do I understand that right? Yes, but there comes before that collective actors that have the job of building these institutions from grassroots, from bottom up, often under conditions of repression and constraints. And these are experiences. These are these create templates about what to do when you build democratic institutions. And also this creates collective capacity in society for upholding those institutions. This is what I argue is crucial for both the quality and durability of new democratic regimes. So how do you go about building organizations and institutions in a repressive environment? I mean, I imagine that a repressive state is going to recognize that organizations and different institutions are starting to form around them that are hostile to the state and try to eliminate them. How is it that people who believe in democracy, who believe in just change, who believe in human rights, how is it that they can develop these organizations within these environments? So this is a very hard question and very, I think, important question. So when we look at these cases that I examine in the book, there are different occasions that opportunities arise. One is when there are openings from the top. So the authoritarian regime is a big player in this game. And sometimes they open up and they create space. This opening up itself could be response to earlier episodes of protest mobilization. And I argue in the book that longer period of protest mobilization are more likely to be conducive to durable democracy. We see this in Poland that I examine and in South Africa, that there were protest mobilization and then there were both repression and opening in response to that. And this goes through cycles of repression and opening in different countries. So those windows of opportunity from the top that are itself results of previous episodes of mobilization are one path. So we see this in both Poland and South Africa. Another occasion that happens is that sometimes there are protest organizations that these regimes built themselves for controlling the population. And there are often debates among the opposition activists should we participate in this, for example, government-made or government-co-opted trade union or state union, or should we stay away? Sometimes activists participate and are able to create spaces within those co-opted places. There are also other spaces that has been described as free spaces, such as churches and universities. But I think at this point, authoritarian regimes have learned about these free spaces that have penetrated them and have under heavy surveillance. It's much harder, of course, when the regime is very repressive to build formal organizations. But I see still that there are organizations formed under repression. I mean, going back to make an example of Iran, which even though it's not in the book, Iran is going through a very repressive state right now. And if you want to build an organization to say Islamic Republic Moscow, obviously not, you cannot make that. Even they recently closed a charity organization that was just running anti-poverty campaigns. This was a formerly registered NGO, but they had extensive network of charity activists throughout the country. And of course, they have been afraid of this type of activity, so they shut it down. But at the same time, now we have associations of teachers and associations of retired people that are holding a lot of protests. And the government doesn't recognize these organizations formally. It's hard for them to have a space, to have open budget and so on and so forth. But they have their organizations and they are not overtly demanding for regime change or transition to democracy. They want higher wages, but they also want to have free organizations. 
which is, I think, is a fundamental democratic right. And it's very related to what we are speaking about. And the regime rightly thinks, yes, if we give you only the free organization, then the rest comes with that. So the regime doesn't recognize them. There are a lot of teachers in prison, but they are active. They have their organizations. They're protesting. They don't target the top of the regime saying this must go, but they make, I think, radical demands that we want to be in the streets. This is our right to protest. This is in the constitution. You don't recognize your government, but we keep doing it. So we see this as well. And we see that these organizations can also play a role. In Sudan, it was a professional association that took the leadership role during the protest that happened a couple of years ago. They were just announcing the time of place of protest. And because it was a credible organization, uh, it was popular. People were participating. But yeah, even under repression, there are new ways. Internet has been used for rapid mobilization. But internet can also be used for organizing. But we wouldn't see it so visibly. For protests, we see it visibly. They say, tomorrow is the day of rage. Come to Tahrir Square to protest police suppression. That's how internet is used for mobilization. But internet can also be used for organizing. But that's when activists contact each other. They speak with each other. We don't hear about it. We don't see that part. Governments are obviously going heavy on internet. Internet is now being used as a a source and tool of surveillance. And it's become harder for activists for using it for mobilization. But I think there are still capacities and possibilities in internet to be used for organizing even within the context of repressive regimes. You know, the example of Iran, where you said that there's nonprofits and charities building up and it's, in a way, an expression of democracy itself. It's an expression of pluralism. It's changing the way in which society relates to the state. But at the same time, we haven't seen Iran's democratization fully take hold. So we don't know how that's going to really shake out. But we can look at another example, which you do cite in the book, which is Poland, where solidarity did not start out as an institution of democratization. It started out with specific labor demands, started out trying to represent workers. And in the end, after almost a decade, that was really the institution and the organization that was created that helped bring about the fall of communism within Poland. So, I mean, we've seen that exact template play out in other examples in history. Yes. The initial demands were about the Gedans shipyard. And it then expanded to workers within the country. And then it came down to this, okay, we recognize the Communist Party. We are not demanding for you to go. Just give us a space to organize and have our independent trade union. And it was the first independent trade union in the whole communist world. So sometimes making more moderate demands is the more radical thing to do. And that's what it takes courage. And that's what solidarity did. And then it was suppressed. So if we spend in 1980-81, things looking very interesting in Poland. If we stand in 1983, things look terrible. It's like solidarity was popular, but was a failure. So we can't always also, I think, judge from where we are standing in the history. We shouldn't take a presentist moment for Iran or for another country. We might be in a type of 1983 moment of Poland. I'm not saying necessarily we are there. But there are these forces and potentials, and the history is not determined. We see openings and possibility, or sometimes we see constraints. No one thought that Arab Spring was going to erupt in Tunisia. A month before that, I was in the annual conference of Middle East Studies Association in November of 2010. And there were multiple panels about the stability and resilience of authoritarian regimes. In the Middle East, there was no panel about the possibility of protest. So key to your idea is that the democratization process, the mobilization process should last longer than sometimes it typically does with these urban civic revolutions that happen that take literally just weeks, days sometimes. Armed mobilizations typically last longer than unarmed ones. They typically begin in the countryside rather than in the cities. They kind of try to outlast the uh, repressive regime. Why is nonviolence still more effective than an armed mobilization that might follow your template of lasting years rather than days? 
Yeah, so I discuss it in the book why armed struggle is more tricky to lead to durable democracies. We do have some democracies that have emerged out of armed struggle and have succeeded. El Salvador, I think, is the best example. But most cases of armed insurgency don't lead to democracy in the first place. It's a very rare pathway of armed struggle to democracy. And there are multiple reasons. One is that just violence and democracy, especially armed insurgency, they're not compatible. You can't have a democracy while people are shooting at each other. Now you can say, okay, that's a means and that's the ends. We use armed insurgency and violence, and then we will stop it when we have democracy. But it's often not the case. It's hard to stop violence. It's very challenging to turn combatants to civilians, to unarmed movements. So we see in a lot of countries with the history of civil war that either civil war continues or other forms of organized crime take place, which undermines quality of democracy. That's one reason. The other uh, major reason is that the type of organizations that armed insurgency takes is often non-democratic. It's hierarchical. And it's a matter of secrecy, which is opposite of a democratic organization. So in general, armed struggle is more compatible with democratic organizations. Again, it's not necessary. You can also have a non-democratic organization that wage unarmed struggle. But for armed struggle, it's impossible. I don't know any democratic organization that involves an armed struggle. Even in the case of South Africa, ANC has been criticized for its authoritarian internal structure, which is in a way a legacy of armed struggle and also a legacy of the type of communist organizational template they adopted and they learned from South African Communist Party. When you have this idea of democratic centralism, when you elect the leaders, but then it's whatever the leader says, the organization just falls. So I think in those two senses, armed struggle cannot be conducive to democracy. So first is that it rarely even reach a democratic regime. It often doesn't stop. And the type of organizations that are involved are not democratic. The other thing that usually you need like third actors, like UN peacekeepers or other foreign countries to come there and make sure that civil war wouldn't erupt. So there are a few cases, but these are rare cases. And it's not a common pathway for democracy building. When people are killed from civilians this way, other way, these wounds are just hard to heal. They stay in the psyche of a, of a nation and we see their effects for a long time to come, both the interstate wars and internal civil wars. The impression that I'm getting is that it's not just about building organizations over a long period of time of mobilization. It's building the right type of institutions that can transition over into democracy. So the democratization process, like we said at the beginning, should already be looking forward to the consolidation of democracy with democratic institutions that they can carry over. And the process is obviously not going to be pull it out of the box and it's ready to go from day one. But you've got a head start if you're going to create a durable democracy. If you're trying to begin everything at the moment that you take power, I mean, there's just too many things to be able to handle. And it's part of the reason why so many democracies end up failing shortly after the revolution ends. Yeah, so when going back to South Africa and Poland, one thing they did, they didn't just build organizations. They were practicing what would it be like to be a democratic citizen for people who were participating in like the unions in South Africa. They were trying to have this bottom-up democratic process within a factory when the factory workers elect their shop stewards and then they build regional committees to make decisions. So participatory democracy was being practiced in South Africa and Poland. Poland also was the idea that the civil society was like one of the places that a major theory of civil society was cultivated was by Polish intellectuals such as Adam Miknik. And again, their idea was that we leave politics to the government, the idea of anti-politics, and we practice civil society when we can speak with each other, be civil with each other, cooperate and build collective capacity and making decisions. So yes, organizations is a structure that facilitates this type of participatory democracy. I mean, initially, there was this idea that participatory democracy is incompatible with organizations. 
So we had this idea of absolute horizontalism and anyone can have a voice. But now we have experience and these ideas have been developed and criticized, especially within the feminist movement. And so we know about the tyranny of a structurelessness. So to have participation, you have you need structures of decision-making, regulation, deliberation, and accountability. So this is what this organization initially can do within the movement. And then when the cadres, the leaders, the grassroots have practiced this, they know how this works, it's a better chance that we would also see this coming to the higher scale when the transition succeeds and then the new democracy begins. So let me ask you a question that I think is on just about everybody's mind. Tunisia was largely considered a democratic success. Today, it looks like it might turn out to be a failure of the Arab Spring, along with some of the other revolutions that were attempted. What's your opinion? Tunisia lasted almost a decade. Is that a democratic success or a failure? I think for the Middle East, it's a case of relative success. The Middle East is the most anti-democratic, most authoritarian region in the world. And from the indicators like VDEM, which is now a major democracy data set, Tunisia has reached the highest democracy score any Middle Eastern country has been able to reach. So I think democracy has ended in Tunisia, but we still have a decade of democracy. Again, we shouldn't see this just from the present moment that if it failed now, this has all been nothing. No, I think we have had a decade of democratic experience in Tunisia. That's one thing. Another thing is that the episode of 2011 to 2014 was an important episode. When Islamists and non-Islamists faced each other, it didn't end in violence. Go back to 1979 Iraq. Bloody violence. Islamists killed non-Islamists. Egypt, at the same time, the government non-Islamists massacred. Islamists. Algeria, 1990-1991, a massacre. So we have seen very violent episodes of encounter between Islamists and non-Islamists. We didn't see this in Tunisia. They were able to reach a compromise. They wrote a constitution together that they eventually agreed to it. And we had a decade of peaceful democracy in the Middle East. Political rights were respected for a decade. So Yes, the ending, I think we can see the ending, but these things have happened. And the situation doesn't look good in Tunisia right now, but still Tunisia has a more organized civil society than other Arab countries. At least in the midterm and long term, I'm optimistic. In short term, I'm pessimistic. So you kind of mentioned the term authoritarian legacies once before. I kind of wonder about the idea of democratic legacies such as when a country like Tunisia democratizes, has years of experience under a democracy, whether or not that's going to influence its future political trajectory as moments occur and opportunities come up for it to democratize once again. Because I look at Europe and countries like France, who are in their fifth republic, which means that they've had five bites at the apple before they've tried to get democracy right. And you could still argue that we may end up finding a sixth republic in France where they try to make an even better democracy someday in the future. Do you expect there to be democratic legacies within some of the countries like Tunisia or even Egypt where maybe they might have a better success the next time that they make an effort at a democratic experiment in the Middle East? So in the book, there's a statistical chapter when I look at all the democracies that have emerged from 1950 to 2010. And there I confirm the main argument of the book that the longer length of honor mobilization is associated with higher chance of democratic durability and also growth of democratic quality. But I also look at other explanations. And one thing that I find significant in all the models is this previous democratic experience. Democracies that have previous years of democracy before the current episode that we are analyzing in the model, they're more likely to survive. And the quality of democracy is also more likely to grow. And this previous democratic experience also provides a foundation for further organizing and alliance building. It wouldn't be automatic. The political actors should learn, should examine this, and should enter conversation with each other to use this 
but it is certainly an opportunity. The main challenge in the Tunisian opposition, like any other opposition now, is that to overcome fragmentation. We still see a big chasm between the Islamist party and Nahda, other part of the political opposition. This is, a, I think, major divide that should be overcome for the Tunisian opposition to be able to push further for democratization. And the other thing is that to reconnect with elements of civil society that were active during the 2011-14, major one was UGTT, main trade union, that has been oppositional or co-opted at different periods of Tunisian history. And when it stood by democracy in 2011 and 2014, democracy succeeded. Unfortunately, UGTT stayed passive during the current episode. And even some of the members supported the authoritarian turn by the president. So this would be also important for making ties within the opposition, also activate the trade union and bring it to the side of the democratic movement. So, yes, there's a foundation. I think this would be an important episode for the Tunisian opposition to learn from. We also see this in Latin America, in Argentina, for example. You have these Peronists and anti-Peronists going at each other which contributed to the failure of the Argentinian democracy in a couple of episodes. But what was significant in early 1980s was that they grew more tolerance for each other and they were able to build a united coalition against dictatorship and for democracy. To, I think, democracy to come back to Tunisia, we need to see similar steps to be taken. So we've been talking a lot in the abstract and we've talked about some historical examples, but... Looking forward into the future, do you know of any democracy movements that show real promise to you that look like they might be able to create durable democracies sometime in the future? Well, the one that I'm uh, watching closely now is Brazil. So we have had kind of back and forth. Brazil had the long movement for democracy. The workers' movement it was formed during the years of struggle against authoritarianism. They came to power more than a decade after the transition had happened. And then we have had an episode of democratic erosion with the presidency of Bolsonaro. But Workers' Party as a state organizationally strong, and I don't want to go through all the details, but we know that former president Lula do Silva is contesting presidency, and there's a good chance for him to win the elections if unusual things don't happen. And if it happens, I think it would be an important success for now, because I see this is a global struggle of authoritarianism versus democracy. I think authoritarianism has been emboldened and has taken over several places. But good things have happened recently. One was in Bolivia, when the coup was kind of subverted and civilians came back to power. It was also good that Morales was gone and the mass party was able to exert itself without its founder. Chile was promising, and I have hope for Brazil. These are places that I see promises. And there are other movements. I mean, the struggle is ongoing in Sudan, in Burma. I think the authoritarian regime has suppressed the movement for now. But there are movements that are weakened, that are repressed and wounded. But at some point, they will come back to the surface. We just look at the history. It always doesn't go one way. I don't know how long this dark age of authoritarian turn will last. But one thing I see from history is that it's always not going to go in the same direction. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I agree with you that I think Latin America is a real bright spot right now in terms of democracy. A lot of different stuff going on. One country you didn't mention is Ecuador that's had a real turnaround as well. It's an interesting part of the world that I think sometimes gets overlooked, but is really, you know, at the forefront right now of defending democracy at the current moment. But uh, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you once again for writing your book. The book, once again, is Popular Politics and the Path to Durable Democracy. Thank you once again for joining and thank you for writing the book. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a real honor for me to speak on this podcast with you. Now, that was my conversation with Ali back in August. But after months of protests in Iran, I reached out to Ali to get his thoughts. So this part of the conversation was recorded on Friday, November 18th, 
Here is part two of this episode. So, Ali, about a month after we talked, protests broke out in your home country of Iran or your country of origin, Iran. Let's start there. I really want to touch on what these protests are really about. Yeah, these protests have been extraordinary in many ways, as I think most of our listeners know. They started when Mahsa Amini, a young Kurdish Iranian woman, died or was killed in the custody of the morality police in Iran. She was picked up because of her hijab. And then protests broke out first in her hometown of Saqqez in her funeral. And then it spread in the next days to other Kurdish cities around. Then in Tehran, there were protests and some other big cities. And then we had the diffusion of protests to other cities around the country. And weeks has passed since. Protests have continued despite heavy crackdown of government. And the protests are about several things. So first thing is, this is about compulsory hijab. This is about state subjugation of women's bodies. And we see in, in this protest, women have been taking off their scarves, putting them on fire, cutting their hair. So the women issues is at the forefront. We see in many videos that women are leading these protests, young women in their late teens and in their 20s. So many have observed that this is a new generation protesting. A main slogan we've been hearing is women like freedom which is rooted in the struggles of Kurdish women in Turkey and then in Syria. And then this slogan has traveled to Iran's Kurdistan. And from there, it has become a national slogan. We have had episodes of protests, anti-regime protests before, starting in 2017, 18, 2019. And we are currently, as we are recording this podcast, this is the anniversary of 2019 protests, and we saw an uptick in protests in the last three days in Iran. So there is continuity of these protests with past protests, and there are differences. Similar to the previous protests, there is a strong anti-regime theme in these protests. Protesters are calling for the end of the Islamic Republic and say that is what they want. So that is also one of the major demands of these protests. In addition to that, uh, we observe a clear ethnic element to these protests. They started in the Kurdish region of Iran, but they have spread it in other areas of Iran. Another area that has seen protests are in the southeast of Iran, when the Baluch minority lives. They're also a religious minority. They're Sunni, Mahsa Amini, and that part of Kurdistan, also they are Sunni. There have been protests in Turkish regions in the northwest, and we see clear expressions of ethnic solidarity between these different regions and recognition of the diversity and pluralism of different ethnicities in Iran. This is new to observe these type of solidarities to emerge at a national level. In addition to this, we also see a reactivation of protests at universities in Iran. The universities have been a contested space in the last four decades. We've also seen that these protests have spread to schools, like high schools. There have been even videos from elementary schools. We see young girls at schools, they're taking off their hijab, taking down the pictures of Khomeini, the leader of the Iranian revolution and first leader of Islamic Republic, and the picture of Ali Khamenei. We've seen these girls are taking them down, showing the middle fingers to them. These pictures have become iconic. So yeah, we have been uh, observing a big uprising that still continues today despite heavy repression. One of the most startling facts of this set of protests have been the calls for the death of Khamenei, that they're not just looking to see a change in leadership, but they want significant change within Iran. I'd like to know whether or not you feel that these protests are really about a change towards democracy, or if they simply just want a change of who's actually in charge? So I think that this movement is heterogeneous. There is a progressive side that the slogan Women, Life, Freedom represents. The idea behind this slogan is that unless women are free in our society, no one would be free. And the word freedom appears 
And you mentioned the death to Khamenei is one of the main slogans. Probably number one slogan is death to dictator, which is a slogan from 1979 revolution that has been repeated decades after. We had those slogans in that previous episodes of protests that I also mentioned. What's new is this new slogan, Women, Life, Freedom, which is positive. It's about life. It's not about death. And it is about freedom. So it's presenting an alternative. But I think there is an authoritarian side to this movement. We see that in the also lack of tolerance from some part of the opposition that they attack very harshly other sides of the opposition, especially among the diaspora. We have observed kind of a toxic atmosphere. If, for example, someone has a different strategic opinion or about tactics, they get attacked for not being revolutionary enough or being whitewasher or being a reformist. A type of attacks that I think is a good example of disorganization or disorganizing rather than organizing. So for some people who are denouncing Islamic Republic, I think they clearly also say what they want. There are also calls for democracy. You do hear this word from some activists, protesters here and there. For some people, they're denouncing the Islamic Republic, but they don't say as much about what they want instead. I mean, comparing with, I think, 1979, I think the democratic expressions are certainly much stronger. And as I mentioned, there are some authoritarian sites. Also, there are some elements that uh, denounce the plurality, like the ethnic plurality of the movement. But there are also other voices that emphasize freedom, emphasize democracy, emphasize plurality, ethnic plurality. I think the reality is that we have these two sides present. And what comes later, I think, very much depends on the balance of forces within these two sides. The more protesters can articulate about what they actually want and what women life freedom means beyond these three words in terms of what kind of future protesters want in Iran, I think that can persuade more protesters to join these movements. Repression has failed to contain the movement, but they are asking regime change and mere disruption is not enough. The movement needs to accumulate more power that I think it's a main requirement for that is organizing and organization building that I emphasize so much in my book. But to organize, you need a narrative to say where we have come from, where we are going, and what are our values. Another expression of this tension I see in the movement is that a lot of emphasis on what we don't want. And there is some expression of what we want, but the side about what we don't want has become stronger, especially with the violence that the Islamic Republic has been unleashing against protesters. So every day, people have been falling by the security forces every day. Their pictures come up. This ignites anger, and some of the revolutionaries just use these pictures and the denunciation of violence to try to bring more people to the side of protesters. One of the things that I've learned through these protests is just how diverse Iran is. You've already mentioned how the protests have shown some of the pluralism that exists, but it's not just ethnic pluralism. I mean, Iran is a very educated country, much more so than I think people give it credit. It seems that people are much more sophisticated than outsiders recognize. Do you think that the pluralism that exists in Iran will help that movement towards regime change or potential democracy, or do you think it will get in the way of having a clear message? I think without recognizing this pluralism and building a coalition through this pluralism, there's no other way for change. We have different ethnicities, we have different classes, like some workers have joined these protests. There have been some workers protest. Although the news we get about strikes also sometimes are not true and are exaggerated. But this is also the first time, because we've had workers' strikes in Iran, we've had different occupations coming and demanding better salaries or protesting getting laid off. But before this, the episodes of anti-regime protests did not really come together. There are also a lot of workers or laborers or occupations that haven't joined protests. For example, we have an incident that doctors protest or lawyers protest, and that news comes out. And if you just read that, you will think, okay, all, all of the doctors are now protesting. But that is not true. 
this movement has a lot more potential to actualize and more people need to join if this movement actually want to change the government in Iran. From videos that I have seen, I think at any day, we have tens of thousands of people protesting. But we don't have still hundreds of thousands protesting. We don't certainly have had millions of protesting on a day or a week. Iran has between 85 to 90 million population. And Islamic Republic is a strong political regime. They have the oil revenues. They have a strong, robust, repressive apparatus that we have been observing. And they have their own supporters that they have been also mobilizing. In addition to alliances with other authoritarian uh, superpowers or regional powers, such as Russia or China or Syria, this means that this movement needs to just increase their ranks and bring different groups of people. And this would not happen with denying the plurality. We do see some cults currently in the opposition that let's just keep our unity, like don't bring in fragmentation. In some cases, that means don't highlight your identity, that you're a Kurd or you're a Baluch or you are this or that class. I don't think that is going to work. People know what their identities are and what they want. And if we want to gain democracy, we need to talk about issues that would be contested later. So the ethnic issue is one of those issues. While Iran wants a federal system, for example, or a centralized system. Some people say, let's just leave this for after the Islamic Republic has fallen. But we have learned from cases such as Egypt or Tunisia or many of other these recent urban civic revolutions is that, yes, the regime falls and then there is no common denominator between these groups. And that kind of conflict and dispute that could emerge with them could just subvert the whole process, brings back the old regime or give rise to a new form of uh, authoritarian regime. So I think, yes. The recognition of pluralism is required and fundamental for this movement to go forward. So many of us have a lot of hope for these protests, but they've gone on for months now. It's still not clear what the final resolution will be, if this is just one step in Iran's political history, or if this is going to be something that actually has just a massive amount of change and repercussions going forward. Do you feel that these protests right now, that the things that they're doing and the signs that you're seeing through the protests, that they show the foundations for what you describe as a durable democracy for the future? I mean, I have hope as well. And I am, I think, more hopeful than before, especially because the progressive side of this movement came out of nowhere. In the 2019 and 2017-18, there were slogans in support of the monarchy before the 79 revolution. In this time, you didn't hear those slogans. So on the street, you don't hear any like support for monarchy, and instead you have had women life freedom. But also there's a lot of anger, and anger can go different ways. Anger is part of the social movements and revolutions, but anger could also be disrupted. But the same weakness I observe, for example, in the case of Egypt's organizational weakness, I do see that also in Iran as well. There are some labor syndicates, for example, the teacher syndicate has been very active in Iran. So there are some organizations that previously they were like pursuing occupational demands, but now they are siding with the protesters. They are participating in spreading the news for protests, the teachers' organization has called for strikes, for example. Some of the local elites, such as the leader of the Baluch religious population in southeast has joined the protest. So I wouldn't say organization is completely absent. There have been formal organizations that have joined. These are the organizations that the state don't recognize. These are all syndicates that have emerged despite lack of recognition by the state or repression by the state. I know that informal groups are organizing, so that is also a positive step. But for this to lead to durable change, I think organizing is an important requirement. And I don't think any episode like this would be like the end and how we get just to what we want. Look at 1789 French Revolution. And so like, earth-shattering and a turning point in modern history. But that was not the end of it. Then you had 1830, you had 1848, 
it was a contentious episode that changed a lot of things in France. And even though it led to a regime change, that was not the only regime change that happened in France. So uncertainty is just the essential part of this type of episodes. We, we don't know. I mean, if we were standing in the middle of 1978-79 revolution, we wouldn't know where that would be going. And it went somewhere no one had imagined. Even the leaders of the Islamic Republic didn't think they are going to be leaders of the new political regime. So I'm not going to like make a prediction of uh, where this is going. But we can see what kind of political social forces are emerging what kind of coalitions can come together and what are the weaknesses and strength of different parts of this movement. So Ali, before I let you go though, I mean, I know that you grew up in Iran and that this probably means a lot to you. Do you just want to add a personal note of how you felt about these protests and just the excitement maybe of watching these develop? Yeah. I mean, you ask a personal question, so I give you a personal answer. Before this, I didn't know what is the future of Iran. So I prepared myself not to ever go back and die in exile. It's still a possibility. and I'm prepared for it. I think many other Iranians have thought about this. Since this started, I became hopeful that maybe I could go back one day. That changes every day as I watch the news about how it unfolds. I still have hope. I have concerns also as I... Uh, expressed through in this interview. And yes, it's been exciting and it's been overwhelming. It's exciting to see people are rising, to see the amount of bravery on the streets, how these like young women and men go stand up against the armored police with bare hands. It's been inspiring. And it's been tragic to also observe the violence, to watch how people get beaten up people get shot. Even sometimes harder than that is the videos of some of these people take of uh, someone getting beaten up. And you see the reaction of, or you hear the reaction of the person who's recording that. So it's like different levels of mediation of how people in the streets are reacting, how I'm here sitting in the US is reacting. And again, I think for me and many of the other people on this side of the world, We've been also asking ourselves, what can I do to help this movement? And I think a lot of us have become restless, have been just trying to find out what to do. And in a way, I think we've been also living a double life here, trying to just do our regular jobs and be present in the workplace, in the community, and be normal while you're also experiencing a tragedy, or also what is described as thickened history unfold. Because on every single day, just so much happens. And just there are news that happens, and then there are reactions, and it's very emotional. So it's been a struggle to also stay grounded, not get carried away, because for me personally, to be able to present a sound analysis, I also need to stay grounded and not get too affected by emotions, but it's an emotional process. It's just part of it. And now with internet, we have this phenomenon of being here and not there, but also not being here because you're waiting for what's happened today because we also wake up later. So by the time we wake up, a lot has happened in Iran. So every day, I'm sure any Iranian in the US or in Europe, they just wake up checking the news, what happened today, like where protests broke out, someone got shot, beaten up, yeah, it's been a lot. It's been a lot. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, Ali. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends. Because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening.
The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.